0: You know, every time we sin, we treat something in this world as supreme. It's one way of looking at all of sin. Treating a created thing like it's a supreme thing. Now, we have to be careful because all of creation is good. God made it. And he made it, all of it, as a blessing for us to use and to enjoy. And so he gave us creation. He gave us e- each other relationships to have with each other work to do food to enjoy which is a blessing at this time of year isn't a life to live but the moment we take any of the good things that God has given us and treat them that is to think upon them or to act upon them like they are supreme then we are abusing the world we're abusing ourselves and we're abusing others Meaning, misusing. And we're asking the world to give more than it can give, and it leads to addiction and enslavement. That's what sin is treating the world and the things of the world like it's supreme. But our passage this morning, which I'd invite us to turn to Colossians 1, is about the supremacy of Jesus. He's the Word. The eternal word, wisdom, reason, orderer of God. The one who makes sense of all things that are, who's actually the source of all things that are, and makes all things are like they are. He is supreme in his goodness, supreme in his love and grace and authority and wisdom. He's supreme so that he can rescue us from ourselves. He's supreme. Because he made us to be what he did for himself and supreme, in that he is the ultimate object of our lives if we're living properly. When we live our lives in light of Christ's supremacy, he is the one we seek to know, the one. We try to honor and imitate with our lives because of who he is and all that he's done to save us from our sins and all that he's done to make us and the way that he loves us. And so let's read what Colossians 1 verses 9 to 23 tells us about the supremacy of Christ. Colossians 1 beginning in verse 9 and our text will start in verse 15. Colossians 1 verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Look what Paul wants for them. To be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom. You say, well, that seems really abstract and ethereal. No, it's not. Spiritual wisdom is the knowledge you obtain by the Holy Spirit. What's that? Through the word, which tells us about simply what is true. With all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that is not just being able to spit it back out, but to understand what God is saying in his word, in light of your life and the rest of the world. So as to walk, you see, it's very practical. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that means in a way that honors him. That's what that means. What does honor mean? To show the value and the worth of another. If you listen to Christ and you follow his way, what you're doing is you're saying you have worth and value. That's what this is saying. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What is the point of your life to know God? Not in some abstract way, but to know him in all of your life. That's communion with him, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Look, you're not doing this. What are you doing? You're believing what you're told. That's it. Like, okay, I can't figure it all out. It's what God says. I'm going to submit whether it looks like it works out or not. This is not your work to do this. There's nothing you can do to achieve what this is saying. He's praying for them. Rather, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, that you keep going with joy in your heart because of who he is. You don't quit. You have to keep going. You have to keep going because of who he is, and that honors him giving thanks to the father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in his light look you didn't do anything to save yourself he qualified you how he opened your heart lydia the seller of purple had to have her heart opened he opened paul's eyes the scales of death had to fall off of his eyes This is what it says. He qualifies you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That means so you can really see what is true now and then really ultimately in the future in heaven. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Don't you love the tense of the verb? Has delivered. If you're in Christ, you've been rescued already. From the kingdom of darkness, you've been brought out of union with Adam, into union with Christ, into the new covenant of grace. You've been brought out of the kingdom of darkness. How? He did it. Because I worked so hard, I repented so well, because I believed so strongly, because I did what he said. Well, how do you know you're doing enough? No, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. There's a lot of questions today about what is the kingdom of God is very clear It's those who are believers. He rules in the hearts of his people. That's the kingdom of God. It's simple. It's right here. He transferred us. Who is us? The Colossians. Who are who? They're the believers. Into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's the kingdom of God. And then our text. That's background. Verse 15. Then speaks of the one... Who is supreme. He is the image of the invisible God. I thought we were images. Didn't he make us in his image? Yes, except we broke the image. We're shattered images. He, Jesus, you want to know who he really is? He's the true and better Adam. He is what human beings were made to be in the first place. He is the image Of the invisible God. That's also what we were made to be. To reflect his character. To put his likeness on display. By being who he made us to be. But that's who Jesus is. He is the image of the invisible God. firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. And for him, he's supreme. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the church, of the body of the the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's, He's the first one who was ever resurrected. Did you know that? We've had resuscitations, people who got raised and then died again, like Lazarus. You say, well, he was resurrected. No, he was raised and then died. He is the first one to be raised ever and never die. That's Jesus. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, were you? Doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The true word of the living God. Let's pray. God, we thank you you have not left us in darkness, but that you came and you are the light in Jesus. We thank you that Christ, the word made flesh, gave us his word by his spirit through the apostles and the prophets that we might know you that we might know ourselves and know the world that we live in. Lord, help us to believe by grace, to believe more than we did even earlier today, yesterday. Lord, help us to believe, to grow in faith, that we might live as you made us to be because of the precious blood of Jesus that washes us, that wins our hearts. Help us to see him for all that he is and his goodness that we would believe that he's good and not doubt. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this teaches us about Christ's supremacy, and I would draw our attention to three ways. Three ways it, it teaches us about the supremacy of Christ. First, Christ is supreme over creation. That's the first thing we see. Second, he's supreme over his church, his bride, the assembly that he has formed. Third, he's supreme in our salvation. And so Christ is supreme in these ways and more. But let's just look at these three. First, the supremacy of Christ over creation. If you look with me again at verse 15, it says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, some people look at that and they, they scratch their heads and they say, well, how can Christ be the firstborn of creation? Was he created? They're false teachers, who point to this verse, and they say, see there, Jesus is not God. He was created, obviously. God created him. That's what Arius taught hundreds of years ago, it's, but it's a lie, it's false, and it's clear from the context that it's not true. If you look at the next verse, verse 16, it says, for by him all things were created. Think, just think about it. Just think for just a minute. If Jesus created all things... And if he himself is created, then we have a pure contradiction, don't we? How can he create himself? Did he create all things? Yes. Which means he's a creator, he's not creation. In order for a thing to create itself, it would have to be before it was. How can you do a thing before you exist? You can't. You following what I'm saying? This text is clearly not saying that Christ is created its teaching that Christ is God and that he created all things and the gospel of John is even clearer in John 1 verse 3 it says all things were made through him that is the Son of God and without him was not anything made that was made that's really strong without Jesus nothing was made that was made he is the creator so what does this mean that he's the firstborn of all creation well we have to understand something about history to understand that. and that they, they thought of the firstborn maybe differently than we do. Actually, not maybe. They definitely thought of it differently. We think of a firstborn as that's our firstborn, and that's where it stops. But for them, if there's a firstborn, especially son, he was the one who inherited everything. He was the preeminent child, the one who was the heir of the kingdom, the, the one who was heir of the estate, the one who would inherit everything from his father. That's what this is talking about. That Jesus is the firstborn of that which was created by God. He's raised to glory. The one who possesses and rules all of creation. You see how he's supreme over creation. That's what this is saying. He is a preeminent one, the highest rank over all creation. Then it says he's the image of the invisible God. This means that Jesus is the perfect portrait of the character and life of God we see something very similar in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 1 verse 3, it says that Jesus is the radiance what does that mean? the brightness of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, so this goes even further, so Jesus is not an image like Adam was (laughs) he's a, he Jesus is an image of God in that he's the exact imprint of his nature or person. He is God according to his person. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, where do you look? You look at Jesus, who reveals the character and being of our God. In light of Christ, we can see all other things properly as well. Do you know the secret this this reality that when you know Jesus you can know other things. If you understand Christ, if you know Christ you can know other people. You can know yourself. You can know what this world is really about. You can know how to think and live in difficult things in this world. In light of Christ we can know other things. Also, we can see Christ's reflection in other things. We can see Christ in ourselves. You see, I didn't put that in me. (laughs) The love that was there, that's from Jesus. Any faith that's in that heart, that's from him. I know he is the one who formed it. I see Jesus at work in me. A Christian can say that. We can also see Christ in other Christians. This is one reason we gather as the church, is that And that a church is to be a believers-only church. That's the standard. Sometimes unbelievers creep into the church. But why do we have a believers-only church? Well, Christ says it. But an important reason is we reflect him to one another. This is how we can build each other up. This is how we can keep going and encourage each other and bear each other's burdens and love each other and give each other wisdom. Well, only if we're believers. And we can see Christ in one another. We can even see Christ's signature in the works of creation, the beauty of nature, the wonders and the complexities of the world. But we have to begin with Christ revealed in scripture to see any of it. We begin with him revealed in the word of God and then he makes all other things clearer so that we can see truly. And when we look at Jesus, what do we see? This supreme one over the world. What we see is a great ruler unlike the world has ever seen. To understand who Christ is, you have to understand he is king. The perfect king. He's the kind of king any sane person would want to rule them. That means he has every good quality of a ruler. He is glorious, full of honor and goodness. He is perfectly just, full of virtue, bravery, self-restraint, wisdom. He rules his people for their good, not to gratify his own appetite. He is filled with royal excellence and wonder, and this king laid down his life for wretched sinners. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. It's the kind of ruler he is. And he is not only a good and perfect ruler, but he has the right to be. And we see that in our text, verse 16. How does he have the right to rule? Well, for by him all things were created, In heaven and on earth, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Why does he have the right to rule? Well, there's two reasons he has a right to rule as king. One is because of who he is. He is the perfect good. And the other reason he has a right to rule is he made everything. It's all his. He created the world. He brought it into existence out of nothing. He spoke and it was. Hebrews 11.3 says the universe was created by the word of God so that what was seen was made out of, not made out of things that are visible. Where did it all come from? The word of God. Have you ever looked into the sky at night? Had some beautiful evenings. We could actually do that here this last week. We have a lawn out, on our, out in front of our house, and kids will sometimes, and I will sometimes, just lay down and gaze up into the, into the sky. What do we see? On a clear night, billions of stars. Did you know Jesus put every one of them there? He names every one of them. He knows all of them. He delights in every star. They're all his. And when you go to the beach, and you stand at the edge of the water, and the waves crash, upon your feet jesus put that line there that says this far and no further he made the the waters and he made the dry ground christ rules it he's the ruler the supreme one over all creation he made everything we can see but he also made things invisible so he made the visible world if you look at a tree not every tree is the same but they're all intricate who who did that You ever notice that? You can look at this tree and that tree. Those are all trees, but each one has a distinctive beauty that is glorious. That's the way our God is. He draws us into his beauty through Christ above all. But not only visible things, also invisible things. and You can see it in our text. It says that he rules over thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. You know what that is? Those are that's a heavenly hierarchy. Those are angelic beings, spiritual beings, very ancient and wise beings, very powerful beings that are all around us, that are above us, that are that fill the courts of heaven. When we read the book of Revelation, the throngs of angels surround the throne and cry out together. Matthew 18 tells us that their eye is upon the one seated on the throne such that all he has to do is give a word and they are dispatched at his will. He rules. Jesus Christ rules the heavenly beings who are angelic spirits who do his will. He has the, the right to rule over everything because of who he is and because he made all things and he he rules over all things visible and invisible. But here we see more that Jesus not only created everything and rules at them, rules over them. Verse 16 says, "All things were created through Him." And now look, for him and for him. Why were you made? You were made for him. Everything was made for him. We're not made for ourselves, contrary to every other message we hear, We're not. We're made for him. It's the best way to be because it is how things are. He made us for himself. But it says all things were created through him and for him. That is God the Father by the Son through the or by God the Father through the Son by the Spirit created all the world. Or we could put it differently if we wanted that Christ created the world from the Father by the Spirit. Or we could say the Spirit created the world from the Son, from the Father. God made the world through the Son. Everything God does, he does as one, but does according to uh, the three uh, eternal relations of Father, Son, and Spirit. And everything is for him. And then verse 17 says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Do you know this mystery? In him all things hold together. That means the reason your body, sitting in your pew right now, doesn't go into nothingness. And your soul, which is the form and life and vitality of your body, doesn't simply go into nothingness. is because Christ is actively supplying the power of your being at every moment willingly. Don't think of the world as like something that was wound up at the beginning of time and then let go to tick like a clock. That's a lie. Certainly don't buy into the the scientific notions of today that matter is eternal and it's all just a bunch of atoms bumping together. It's all a lie. The truth is Christ supplies the power of existence to everything at every moment. We're utterly dependent upon him. Do you see how he is supreme over creation? The ruler of heaven and earth, the one who governs all things according to his goodness and might. He is the supreme one. And so we worship him. Many look to this world as supreme. They think this world is all there is. They might say otherwise, but they actually think more about the world than Christ. And they look to the world, and the things of this world is that if we could fix it, it would make me happy. But this says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, and all things hold together in him. One historian explained what Augustine of Hippo said was the very essence of Christianity. So this is one of the ancient church fathers who read the Bible very, very carefully. He could get it wrong, but probably you and I would get it wrong sooner. So what the, what the older theologians say, say is important. Doesn't mean they're right, but here's what he did say. You see if you think it's true. A man's life can be compared to a pilgrim's journey to the fatherland. The goal of his wanderings is that land which alone offers him true joy. Heaven. In his journey, he must use ships and wagons to reach his goal. If he were to reach, search for joy in the pleasures of the journey, that which ought to be merely a means would thereby become the goal. So what if here's a man going to a a great fatherland and he's using wagons and ships and he spends all of his time focused on the wagon and the ship and polishing the ship and looking at the ship and sitting on the ship and wishing he could just stay on the ship. Instead of realizing it's a way to get somewhere, the goal is the fatherland. In the same way, the world in which the Christian lives should be used, but it must not become the object of final joy. In his great work, The City of God, here is what Augustine said Those who are good use the world that they may enjoy God. Those who are wicked, on the contrary, Use God that they may enjoy the world. Christ is supreme over creation. When it says use, don't put a negative cast on that. Look at how Christ used the world. Not to gratify selfish, sinful appetites, he used it in the sense that he worked and lived and acted in it to the glory of God, even uh, to the task which God called him. So Christ is supreme over creation. But second, consider the supremacy of Christ over the church. So he's supreme over creation. He's also supreme over the church. Verse 18 says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. There's that word firstborn again. That in everything he might be preeminent. So here it says he's the head of the church. What does that mean? What is a head? Is it, is it not the source of the guidance, but also the nourishment, the health, the life, the well-being of the body? You know, someone once said, well, the body may have a head, but the neck turns it. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Well, where does the neck get its power to turn? And the head sends the signals to turn it. The head provides the life and nourishment to the the neck. And so the church does not turn Christ. We are not, the the body doesn't rule Christ in any sense. Rather, he is the source of our life, our nourishment, our guidance, our well-being. He's the source by which we see all things, we hear all things aright, the way, the one who guides us through this world. And so the church has Christ for its head, but why does Jesus have such authority over the church? Well, verse 19 gives us the answer. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. No mere man is a head of the church. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ, which means the fullness of his attributes, of the divine attributes are in Christ. Jesus has authority over the church because of who he is. Because of his goodness, his infinite love, his fullness of justice. That he is the very embodiment of mercy and grace. That our Lord Jesus is perfectly pure and unmixed in his intention to do good to the church. And actually doing good to the church. Jesus is true God. Which is why he has authority to rule the church there's another reason Jesus has authority to rule the church you can see it in verse 20 it says god was pleased through him to reconcile himself to himself all things whether in heaven or on earth making peace by the blood of the cross so jesus has authority over the church because of what he does for the church now just a little footnote here some people look at verse 20 and you might want to look at it with me and they say well look that looks like everybody's going to be saved through him to reconcile, it doesn't say try to reconcile, it doesn't make, say re- make reconciliation possible. It says to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Not trying to make peace, not making peace possible, making peace by the blood of the cross. And so there were some early church fathers, Origen and later Gregory of Nyssa said, this means everyone's going to be saved. But again, just like in the last text, when we looked at the context. We need to look at the context here. What's it say? First, consider the broad context of the Bible. Matthew 25, verse 46, Jesus tells us that, the, that, that hell is eternal. There is hell, and hell will last forever. It's, Jesus says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So here, that should alert us. There's something we're misreading about these verses. If we think it's saying Jesus is going to save everyone, God's victory over evil doesn't mean everyone is saved. It's the way people get to this universalistic idea. They think, oh, well, for God to be victorious through Jesus, everyone has to be saved. No, he's victorious because everyone in the end has to bow the knee. Whether you're a believer or not, that's his victory. Some will do it from hell. Others from heaven, all on the last day. But the context tells us what's going on here. If you look back at verse 18, it tells us what the context is. He is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that everything he might be preeminent. And then the verse right after verse 20 picks back up with the church. Look at verse 21. And you, that is the church, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled, same word, reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now look, if indeed you continue in the faith, the Bible has no thought of reconciliation to an unbeliever. And so what do we make of this all things on earth and in heaven? Well, the word all has to be interpreted according to context, always in scripture. All things refers to all who believe in him. This is all the elect, all the church of God. And when it says in heaven or on earth, reconciled to him, do you remember that the saints of the Old Testament, they died before Christ came. And Christ went down and led led a host of captives free and brought them into eternal glory such that they may be all in all. So so there is a church of heaven right now (laughs) and there is a church on earth and they're all reconciled To Christ. This word reconcile means to bring back a former state of peace and harmony. That's what he's doing. He's bringing us into a state of peace and harmony so that we gladly worship him, that we know his goodness, and we live in his well being. The Lord Jesus rules the church according to his wisdom and his great love. But let's consider one other thing. We've seen that Christ is supreme over creation. Christ is supreme over the church, the ruler, the head, the savior of the church. But Christ is also supreme over salvation. If you, you can see it in verse 21. This tells us why we need Jesus to be our supreme savior. And it says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. I wonder if you recognize yourself in those words. That kind of person needs a savior. Let's look at these words one at a time. You were once alienated. That word could be translated estranged or separated from God. Do you know if if you talk to people on the street, I don't know if you've ever done this, Just, just go out on the street and say, do you believe in God? Almost always, there's a small number who say no, but almost always they say yes. And then if you say, do you believe in heaven? They'll say, sure. You think you're going there? They'll say, absolutely. People don't believe they're alienated from God. But what does it say? They are. Their minds are darkened. They have seared their consciences. And though they know God, they refuse to believe they're alienated from him. It says you were hostile in mind. So before anyone knows Jesus, they are hateful in mind. Romans 1 says that human beings by nature are haters of God. Now, most people don't know that. They hate God and they don't have any clue that they hate him. But what is hatred? You know, hatred isn't always an active desire to destroy. But the more they know the one true God, the more they do have that active desire to destroy him. What they they think they know is the God of their own making. They know elements of who he is, aspects of him. But when it comes to the one true holy God of true love and justice and mercy, the one true God who is the creator of all and who rules all, they hate him. What does it mean to hate? It means to oppose with all your might, it means to resist, to work with force against. And ultimately, hatred means to murder or to not desire the being of another. Love is to want someone's being and well-being. Hatred is not to desire their being And that's how unbelievers think of God. They do not want him to be. And they work very hard to convince themselves that he is not. Human beings naturally, though, hate the one true God. And it says you were doing evil deeds at that time. Evil deeds, what are they? Well, they're anything contrary to God's word, anything that breaks his commandments. The moral law is summarized in the Ten Commandments, but also revealed in the heart of every human being. All men know that they're sinners, They do evil deeds and they justify them. And unbelievers hate to hear these things, particularly those who like to think highly of themselves, which is all sinners, but some are prouder than others. There's a story about Lady Huntington who wrote a letter inviting one of her friends, the Duchess of Buckingham, so it's this, you know, high, high born lady. Who only thinks well of herself, the Duchess of Buckingham, to hear George Whitfield preach. What do you think she's going to hear if she goes to hear George Whitfield preach? She's going to hear about the law of God and sin and justice, and she's going to hear about the grace of Jesus who saves. And here's what the Duchess of Buckingham said to Lady Huntington's invitation. She said, it is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting, and I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiment so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. People don't want to think of themselves as terrible sinners, especially the accomplished especially those who have made something of themselves or were born into something. But the Bible says that you and I need Jesus. Verse 23 tells us how Jesus saves us. It says, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by, the de- by his death. He's reconciled us. This is supreme salvation. Jesus, not you, Jesus, reconciles you to God. You were hostile to God, but Jesus makes you a friend of God. You were separated from God, but by grace, Jesus brings you near to God. You had a cold, hard heart that hated God, but Jesus gives you a heart of flesh that believes and loves the one true God. You were devoted to your sin and yourself, but Jesus wins your devotion. Jesus is your supreme savior. He conquers your heart with his love With his beauty, his wisdom, his truth, and by his blood that flowed down on the cross to cover wretches like you and me and to cancel our debts. He wins us to himself. The last part of verse 22 tells us that Christ saves us for something. Why does he reconcile you? in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That word holy means set apart from sin. The word blameless means without blemish. That is, a blameless life does not have areas of persistent, hardened impurity. Impurity has to do with double-mindedness. That's what without blemish means. It means you... Christ is your King, your Lord, your Savior. And though you you will sin, you will sin. You don't want to. Christian doesn't want to. When he's sane in the moment, everyone wants to sin. That's why they do it. But he doesn't want to live that way. That's his purpose, to believe Jesus and keep going in Christ. That's what it means to be blameless or without blemish. Then these words, above reproach, mean this. No one will be able to bring a charge against you in court. Not not a civil court or a church court, but just any kind of human court. No one will be able to legitimately charge you with wrong. That your enemies and God's enemies won't be able to bring charges against you. Now, now there may be people who hate you, and there will be if you trust the Lord and live like a Christian. Some will respect you, some will admire you, but you will be hated because you convict them that their deeds are evil. A friend of the world is an enemy of God. So people may hate you and what you stand for, but if you're above reproach, they will search in vain for something to lay hold of and accuse you of truthfully. They will find and latch on to lesser things, but they won't actually be able to accuse you of anything true that would make you before any just court. And so they'll snatch at lesser things and accuse you of small things and try to turn small things into big things. But your life is to be like that, above reproach. And so there is Christ's goal in saving us. That's the end to which we're saved, holy, blameless, above reproach. And then verse 23 tells us one of the proofs of salvation. It says, you are saved if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So he has now reconciled you. That's verse 22. Notice it doesn't say he will reconcile you if you continue in the faith. It says he has now already reconciled you, and the proof of it is if you indeed continue in the faith. Stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. What does that mean? Stable means settled. It means that if you're in Christ, you will not vacillate from him. It does not mean you'll never sin. It doesn't mean you'll never act traitorously toward him. But it means you're stable in the sense you're committed to him. So here's the thing. There's some people who, who, who are unstable. They vacillate. One day they say they're committed to Christ. But the next day they're committed to the old gods that stretch all the way back to the beginning, the god of sex, Aphrodite, she has a name. The old god of power, of food and of pleasure, the carnal appetites, this is nothing new. They leave Jesus for these old gods and they give themselves to a false god and then they surround themselves with people who perform the same pagan worship that they want to perform with them and they build themselves a new church. Or they join a new church. You know, you have a church. You know this everyone has a church. Because there's people that run with you according to what you love. It can either be Christ Church or some other church. Who is it that you resonate with and worship? And so stable means settled. You're committed. It doesn't mean you're always on the in the you know. Pursuing Christ like you should, it doesn't mean that you're not sometimes slipping into sin, but it means you want Jesus. You do. You want to stay with him. Steadfast means immovable. Many temptations will try to lure you from Christ, but you must be immovable from Christ. Steadfast. What temptation could possibly promise you more than Jesus? Christ is all. He's more satisfying than anything in this world. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel means not leaving the hope of the gospel. You know, very sadly, as a pastor, I have seen professing Christians drift a little more and a little more, shifting from the hope of the gospel. What happens is they start talking in ways that sound like the world first. And their speech shows an obvious love of the world. Next, they start coming to church a little less. A little less. A little less. And finally, they leave God's people. And they join with other friends that love what they love. And then finally, they abandon the gospel. And they put their hope in a false message of salvation. But the only way to endure is to stay with Jesus. You must never leave or move away from him. Why would anyone move away from such a great savior? True God and true man full of wisdom and love and grace who bought you with a price. What more can he do to show you his goodness? He is good. Won't you believe him? Hold fast to him. Learn from him one day at a time. And if you never shift away from him, then you'll continue to the very end in his great salvation. And if you do that, it's only because his grace is at work within you. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we thank you for your grace to us, for Jesus, who is indeed supreme over the world, over the church, and over our salvation. Lord, help him to be central in our minds through your word, that we would love each other, we would encourage each other in this great and true fight that we fight in this world, the fight of faith, looking unto him, running the race you've put before us. In Jesus' name, amen.